All right, let's open in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us, um, for being our good, great Father. I pray that today you would just open up wisdom to us, that you would show us who you are, that we would draw closer to you through your word this morning. I pray that you would speak through me and teach us from your word. In your name, amen. Since 2014, Ligonier Ministries has conducted what they call the State of Theology Poll. Now, they do this every two years. The latest one was done in 2020. And the purpose of this poll is to show the state of theology in America. Um, they ask about 600 self-identified evangelicals, self-identified. Whenever you hear that now, it's like, what does that really mean, right? Like, you know, you could self-identify as anything. But self-identified evangelicals, um, ask them a set of questions, theological questions, and try to get the state of theology in America. Um, here's some of those, those questions and results. When asked who Jesus is, 65% believe that Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God. 65%. First and greatest being created by God. We know this is a heretical view held by the Arians of old and uh, Jehovah's Witnesses of today. 30% believed that Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God. 42% believe that, that God accepts the worship of all religions, including Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Accepts the worship of all religions. Now again, these are self-identified evangelicals who gave these results. There's obviously confusion as to who Jesus is. Who is Jesus? I mean, the world is confused. Other religions are confused. And from this, we see that even within what we would call Orthodox Christianity, the church, there is confusion. Who, who is Jesus? Now, the problem with that is that as believers, followers of Jesus, we know that everything we hold to, rises or falls on who he is. That is everything to us. As Paul said in the scriptures, if he is not who he said he is or who the Bible says he is, then we are to be pitied above all men because we have a false gospel and we're wasting our time here, right? So who is Jesus? That is the question that we're going to try to answer today. Because in that, Paul was not confused. And I think the goal of the passage today, the goal of what he is writing, is to clear up confusion for the Colossians, and maybe through that also for us. Because there's, there's no room within the Bible for an opinion or for poll answers as to who he is. Our passage gives us what I believe to be the greatest description of Jesus in all of Scripture. So two weeks ago, if you were here, Chris showed us uh, some of what was going on in Colossae at the time. 
some of what was going on potentially in the church, some of the confusion that they might have had, that being potential uh, misunderstandings of worship, of creation, and even of the nature of Jesus, promoting wrong views. And then last week, Ross preached on this prayer that Paul has for the Colossians, that we are to be built up in our wisdom of Jesus, that we are to look more like him, to have a correct and rich understanding of who he is. And our passage today coming out of that, now you might expect him to give some clear, distinct ways of how do you do that? How are you built up in Christ? We don't exactly have that. He goes into this long description and theology of Jesus. And I think why is so that when we read this, when we see who Jesus is, we know we're worshiping up the most glorious, supreme king and creator. And that through this right understanding of who he is, we know that we should be built up like him and not like someone else. This is why it's Jesus we're following and not anyone else. There's a reason for that. And Paul doesn't just assume that the church is fully aware of this. And, you know, hearing some of those, those poll answers, you know, I'd be like, well of, well, of course we believe that Jesus wasn't created and that he wasn't just a great teacher. Paul could have thought the same thing, but he gave them this deep description of Jesus because sometimes there's misunderstandings and confusion that we may not even know. And even if there isn't, I mean, he started out by saying they had great faith and that uh, they were bearing fruit, but it's still good to go back and remember where our base is and where our foundation is and who it's on. So that's what, that's what Paul does for us today. He zooms out. He gives us this full scope and breadth of the person of Jesus. And then as he goes along, you'll see that he narrows his view until he gets down to individualized again at the end of the passage. So if you would open up to Colossians 1. Colossians 1, we're going to be in 15 through 23 today, but I'll read 15 through 17 first. And the question again that we are asking today, and I believe that Paul answers for us, is who is Jesus? Who is he? Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It says, he is, that being Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. So the first thing we see here is that Paul shows us who Jesus is in regard to creation, who he is in regard to creation. And then he goes on to expound upon that. So our first point today is that Jesus is God, Lord over creation. He's both God and he's Lord over creation. So the first thing he says, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, you may ask, as others have, aren't we all made in the image of God? What makes Jesus unique in this? Again, 
If he's the one we're meant to be built up in and worshiping, what makes him unique if we are all in the image of God? How does this make him different? You see, in Genesis 1.26, it does say that we are in the image of God after his likeness. The difference is Jesus is the image of God. We are after his likeness. There's a distinction there. And this word for image that we see in Colossians is also in Matthew 22.20. And this is where Jesus has a coin and he asks, Who's, whose image is on this and whose inscription is it? And the answer, of course, is Caesar's. And you see, a blacksmith would take a piece of metal and he would hammer it and flatten it and heat it up and he would imprint the image, the actual image and inscription of Caesar on it. So if you had this coin and you were nowhere near Caesar, you could say, this is him. This is what he looks like. This is inscription. In the same way, we see Jesus is the exact image or picture of God. That is what he is claiming. So when we see Jesus, we see God. When he acts, God is acting. His life, his actions, his words. When we read through the through Matthew, through John, we're seeing God in the flesh, visible before us. If you'll turn there with me really quick, John 14, 8 and 9, we'll see this. John 14, 8 and 9. The disciples wanted to see God. They wanted to know. And Philip asks, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Only Jesus could answer that way, right? That would be blasphemous for either any of us to say, haven't you seen me? Have you seen me? You've seen God. Now, we can do things, we can bear fruit, and we can proclaim the gospel, and these things resemble God, and they can resemble Jesus. I mean, we're meant to be built up in his likeness and look like him, but we are not him. And Jesus is claiming to be God here. No one else can make that claim. As Hebrew says, he is the exact imprint of his nature. So, Jesus is God but he goes on and he says, he's the firstborn of all creation. Now again, another question arises. Is Jesus, as so many self-proclaimed evangelicals apparently think, a created being? Is he created? Well, believe it or not, firstborn is not referring to being born or created. Uh, that is not the intent here. What does it mean to be a firstborn, especially in this culture? It was a position. It was a ranking. It was uh, having an inheritance, an heir, a ruler. In Psalms, David is called the firstborn of all the kings of the earth. Now, clearly, we don't think that all the kings were one big family, and David was the first to be born of all of them. It is not literal firstborn, but it's his position. God put him there as ruler. He was working through him as king over governing all kings. It was 
power. So Jesus being the firstborn of all creation means he stands over creation with power and authority. It is his right to do with as he pleases. It is his inheritance. It is his possession. And this is flushing out some of those implications of what it means to be God. Because no one else can, can claim firstborn possession over creation. No one can do that unless you were God. God in the flesh before us. Not of this world, but separate. And not just separate, but supreme and sovereign over it. So what gave Jesus the right over all creation? Why, why him? First, he was God. He stands over creation as Lord. And then Paul continues to base these claims. He doesn't just leave us with that. He continues to flesh us out and base his claims. He wants to really affirm these truths. So he says, for by him, all things were created. So if it's not good enough that he's God and he stands over it, not only that, but he is creator, not created, but the one who created all things. And we can affirm that Jesus is God and that he is Lord and sovereign over all things because he is the one who created it. You can't hold that position or power if you are created. So no, he's not the first and greatest created being. He is creator of all things. And he stands over it as God, instructing as he wills, moving as he wills, enjoying it all as his possession. But once again, you know, Paul doesn't want there to be any confusion. So he goes on and he lets them know, what, what do I mean by he created all things? What do I mean by that? He says, all things, that is, in heaven and on earth, in case that's not clear enough, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authority. What does it mean that he created authorities and rulers and dominions? What does that mean? How do you create those things? It means that he is establisher of them. So this is now getting slightly more specific. He is not just creating everything and leaving it as it is, separate, but he is now working in it establishing rulers and authorities, building people and nations up and tearing them down. He's not simply creator. He is also establisher, both of physical and spiritual realm. He is Lord of it all. He is ruler of it all, working through history. And Paul says all things are through him, and for him. So we see all things are through him because he is creating all things and he's establishing all things. So they're working through him. But what is the purpose of everything? Why has he done this? He says it's for him, for his glory. If we're thinking about creation, mountains, oceans, plains, all created for his glory, to the praise of who he is, for his possession, for his inheritance, to make him look good. What is the point of authorities? And, you know, why are we here? Why are we on this rock flying through space? There's purpose for every one of us here. Because if you are created as you are, then you are created for him, 
for Jesus. Not by accident, not without purpose, but for him. This is true of everyone, no matter what stage of life you're in, no matter how old you are, no matter what you have done or haven't done, if you are the child growing up, you're created for him. If you're in the womb, you're created for him. If you are a high schooler not knowing where you fit in, you have purpose here. If you're a college student not knowing what job to take and where to go, there's purpose. Adult, midlife crisis, you have purpose. Believe it. If you're retired and not knowing how to spend your time, there is purpose. You're created for God. You're created for his glory. And there's decisions to be made and things to do, but ultimately, your purpose in life is set, despite what you do. Live to the glory and praise of God. And I think we can take comfort in that and knowing that when we have purpose, that we are created for that, and that as long as we're doing that, we're good. That's why we're here. All things, including you and I, were created for him. He says, as he goes on, he's the head of all things. In him, all things hold together. He's before all things, and, all, and in him all things hold together. And again, this is, this is the difference between a God who is disconnected and unconcerned and one who is involved. Because all things are through him and for him, he cares about all things. Now, if they weren't for him, then he might not care because he's separated, he's created it, it's doing its own thing. Whatever happens, happens, not a big deal. But God cares about that which is his. And all creation and everything in creation is created for him, and thus he cares about all things. And because he cares about all things, all things will come to completion through him. He holds it all together for his glory. Things won't fall apart. It's as sure as he is because he is working and he is building. It doesn't take much of a study into this world to know that if one thing was off, I mean, everything would fall apart. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't actually know the science. I didn't look it up. But I'm pretty sure it was like if we were, you know, a very small amount closer to the sun that we'd burn up. And if we were like equally far further away, we would freeze like, that's not accident. If you look at the laws and, and physics of this earth, they all counter each other, and they can't exist without each other. That's not an accident. God is holding all of those things together, working it for his glory. So we don't fear chaos. We don't fear what's happening. We don't fear some climate change that's going to end the world this year, and if not, then definitely next year. Because we know that God is working all things for his glory, and he's holding it together. And what happens, happens for him, and through him, and by him. 
He's sustaining it all. So we can be certain that, God, that Jesus is God. He is Lord over all creation because he is the one who created it and he is the one who is sustaining it. He builds off this further, but he narrows his scope slightly. He gets a smaller context. We go from galaxies and creator above everything, and now he comes down into the world to a people within it, a people within the world. So let's read verses 18 through 20. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What we see here is that Jesus is preeminent and Lord over the church. He's preeminent and he's Lord over the church. He's ahead of the body of the church. What does this mean? Not only creation and nations are under his headship, but we see now that there is a people within that, a smaller context in which he is reigning and ruling as well. Why is the church his? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. And he uses a similar metaphor here than that he did for creation. He uses it for the church. Uh, what, it, what is the head in relation to the body? The language here was, is found throughout the Bible as well as um, in our world. We see the head of a company is, you know, the one over it, the one directing it, the one bringing people in, making sure that it's moving and working. It sustains it. It does with it as it wills. What about of a physical body? We can do all kinds of weird things these days with the body. I mean, the amount of things that you can transplant and, you know, get from someone else kind of blows my mind. There's people who are way too smart in this world, but not only from other people, but like also from animals. Like, it's weird. I'm pretty sure there was a guy who had a pig's heart in him for a time being, um, which like, how does that work? I have no idea. But in the end, I, I believe he actually passed away because uh, the pig's heart had a pig virus. And that's how you know these people are too smart because all these guys are like, yeah, let's do this. You know, we'll get it from a pig. It's going to work out. And no one thought we should check if there's a pig virus in that heart. Like, that, that seems to be the first obvious step. I don't know. But there's crazy things we can do, and you can take out and remove and replace. But the one thing no one has ever done, and I guarantee, you know, China or Russia's trying to figure it out, but no one has done a head transplant. Because the head gives life to the body in a different way than anything else working within it. It gives thoughts, it gives movements, it gives feelings and conviction. See, Christ cannot be replaced as the head of the church. Without him, the body is dead. He is the reason for it all. He is our, 
life, our mission, our conviction. He is what stains us as a church. And that's why we come, right? That's why we worship. We don't come here to promote some celebrity pastor or worship leader or anything else. We don't come to have a good time and just hang out. We come to worship God, Jesus, who is Lord over us who sustains us, who is deserving of our praise. He cannot and will not be dethroned from that. He will use his body, the church, as he desires in the world. We have a singular purpose, and that is to promote him above all things. He's the head of the church, his body. And Paul bases, again, this claim How do we know that Jesus is the head of the body of the church? How do we know? Why is it not someone else? Why is it not Paul or Peter or, you know, the biggest celebrity pastor today? Why Jesus? What makes him unique? Can't anyone make this claim? It says he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Again, similar language. Firstborn of all creation, Firstborn from the dead. I think we could state it this way. He is the firstborn, remember, rule, possession, heir, the firstborn of all life and all death. Jesus can claim this because he has defeated it. He has defeated death on the cross. Adam forsook life and he gives death. Jesus defeated death, and he offers life. He's the first to be resurrected to new life in power and authority, and he does with it as he pleases, as God. Thus, salvation comes through being born again, death to the old self. The world needs rebirth. We need to die, and we need to find our beginning in Christ, the firstborn of the dead. So now Jesus isn't just a great teacher in the church. He is the head of the church. Not in it, but of it. There's purpose there behind who Jesus is, especially in regards to the church. Why? What is the result of that? Why is that important? It says that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent, that is distinguished from, surpassing all things. That is visible, invisible, life, death, new birth, creation. His worth is surpassing every single one of them. His position is over everything and every one. Nothing is outside of his sovereign rule and reign. All things are for him and through him and find their worth in him. He sustains it all. He's working through it all. It's being held together by him. Now that sounds great, but when we look at the news, when we look at the world around us, we might think the church is losing. How, I mean, Jesus is a, is a bad head of the church then, right? The church is losing. When we hear the state of theology polls, we might think he's losing, People don't know who he is. 
When we see things like the fact that 100,000 Christians were martyred last year for their faith, you might think, what is he doing? Jesus is losing in this world. But here, Paul, here, Jesus is preeminent. He's the greatest, the most excellent, the foremost. Nothing compares to him. He is not losing. He is building, and he will be successful because all things are for him and through him and are held together and find their completion in him. His supremacy has no bounds. And there's layers and there's layers to this that Paul keeps going into. And again, he could have stopped here and that would have been enough, but he wants to continually base these claims. How do we know that this is true? Well, we can know this is true and we can trust this for, as he says in verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things, to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now this is expounding on him being the firstborn of the dead. This is what, Jesus, this is what gives Jesus the ultimate authority over the church and salvation because he has reconciled it back to him. That is what he has done. He is God in the flesh. He was pleased to dwell among us, making peace by the blood of his cross. It was corrupted through Adam. It was reconciled through Christ. There was a divide. There was a relationship that was broken there was wrong that needed to be made right. And that's what he did. He made peace with God. He reconciled. And so doing, he becomes the head because he is now the one standing between us and God. He is standing there on our behalf, clothing us in his righteousness because we don't have it. We can't do it. As it says in Hosea, it pleased him to gall those who were not his people through to sin, his people. And those who are not my loved ones, my loved ones. So he took a broken people and they made them his own. Think about that. It pleased God to adopt you as his own. He didn't have to do it, but he did. He became reconciled. He said, these are my people, thus I'm going to shed my blood. So no, God doesn't accept the worship of just any religion out there. Why? Because only Jesus can offer life. Because he chose as God how he was going to reconcile a people back to himself. And he did that through the death on the cross. And that is the way to him. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It is only through Jesus that we can be born again and be reconciled back to God. So from creation to redemption, nothing is outside his control. He is Lord over it all. He is transcendent, holding it all together. Yet in the midst of that, working out details— Firstborn of creation, far removed. Firstborn of the dead, close, intimate. 
where do we go from here? We have a pretty full description of Jesus now, but how does that affect our lives today? What is the real application of this knowledge? You see, it's, it's vitally important to know who Jesus is, but also to know what that means for you personally. So let's read on. Verses 21 through 23. And it says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So his, his scope has narrowed again. He's zoomed in. He's made it more personalized from creation to a community and now to the individual. We see Jesus is Savior and he's Lord over you. He is Savior and he's Lord over you. You who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. You see, everything that's come before this has been amazing. Like, this is the God we worship. This is the holy, incredible, powerful God, the creator, the redeemer. Yet we come here and we see, and you, us, we were alienated and hostile on mind doing evil deeds. Suddenly, this isn't good news. Suddenly, we kind of wish he was just a great teacher, because there's a problem here. What looked glorious in the beginning now should kind of be terrifying. We are enemies of that Jesus, hostile to him. There was a, another question in, in that state of theology poll. It asked, if you believe people sin a little, but are by nature good. Sin a little bit, but by nature are good. The answer of 46% of people said yes. 46% said yes. What we see here, what Paul is trying to point out is that we are not by nature good. We're not by nature neutral. We are by nature enemies of God. He says this even more full in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of us once walked, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. By nature, not by deed, but by nature. That's who we are in the face of a holy God. So no amount of good deed can change that, because that is our nature. The Colossians weren't 
just especially evil people. They weren't just this group of, you know, murderous cult church. No, they were just like you and I, children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All have sinned and fallen short of glory of God. But the next verse in Ephesians 2 says, but God, being rich in mercy, and as we see here, because it pleased him to do so, he has now what? He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death. Our salvation took the firstborn of creation, becoming the firstborn of the dead. That is why that second one was necessary because of us. So I think the first thing he wants us to see is our need. So if you don't know that, you need that. That is why Paul wants to establish it. It's a call to recognize the sinfulness in light of the holy God. The inability to save ourselves and the need to have the peace of the blood, the cross of Jesus, who stepped into this world, who took on flesh, who defeated the sin and chains of death, and thus can reconcile you back to him. It would please God to do that for you. And if you know that, if you know that goodness, that salvation, Paul tells us why he has saved us and gives us a call in that. See, see notice the, tri- the, uh, the contrast. It says alienated, hostile, evil deeds. And then what does he say in verse 22? Holy, blameless, and above reproach. That is what is accomplished by the blood of the cross. He takes a hostile, evil people and makes them holy and blameless. And the reason for that is so that we would be, what does it say, presented to him. Presented to him at the wedding feast of the Lord. That is the ultimate goal, that we would be the bride of Christ, holy and blameless as he is, that he would bring people back into his family. This is the truth of the gospel. He made him who knew no sin so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. And if we were good by nature, this wouldn't be necessary. And if Jesus was a created being or just a great teacher, then he couldn't do it. But in light of everything that we just saw about who Jesus is, that is why having a rich, deep understanding of him is so important because only this Jesus can save. And only this Jesus has, is, is any hope for the church. But in that, as amazing as that is, we have this qualifier that we're given. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith. If indeed you continue in the faith. Now, when you read that, a question might come to mind, as, as it did mine, and I think is an appropriate one. Is this saying that if you have been bought by the blood of Christ, that you have been reconciled to him, that you can become unreconciled from God and fall from grace and lose your salvation? I think that's a fair and appropriate question here. 
back in Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, again, same author, so we know he is consistent in what he's saying here. 13, 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, you heard it, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in it, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So you heard it, you believed it, you were sealed, it is guaranteed, and you will acquire it. So your, your salvation is not your doing, and thus it's not yours to lose. You were chosen by God, you were saved by Jesus, and you were sealed by the Holy Spirit. We have an inheritance that is promised to us in glory, and we will acquire it if we believe in him and have been reconciled back to God. Because if that is not true, if we can lose that, then God is a liar here. Because says, he says, you will acquire it. But God is not a liar. So what, is, what does this mean? We're going to do a little bit of Greek really quick. I have to use my degree for, you know, has to have a purpose. Feel like the money and time spent was worth it or else what's the point, right? So it says, if you continue, continue, Dara said I have to say it because it's lame if you don't say the Greek word. Epimenete, that's continue, is a present active indicative. And then the if there combined with that is a first clause condition. Now in Greek, there's a lot of ways the clause conditions can work and have different emphasis. In this specific one, because of the buildup, it is indicating that Paul is fully expecting them to do this. This isn't a question as to whether or not they are continuing or whether or not they're going to continue. He is fully confident that they are currently and that they will indeed continue to have the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ because they have been saved. So what do we do with that? What is he telling us? We are to continue in faith. What does that mean? What does that look like? It is being stable and steadfast. Why? How? By not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So if we flip that around, the hope of the gospel, this is our foundation. The gospel is the foundation in which we stand on. And the hope in that causes us to be stable and steadfast. And when we are, this results in us continuing in faith. So if you have the hope of the gospel, you can be stable and steadfast and you will continue in faith. You will. Paul is confident of that. This is the climax of this passage. This is the point of it all. And since we know now who Jesus is, both in regard to creation, to the church, to your salvation, that knowledge pushes us into greater maturity and causes us to have a firm foundation to stand on. But we must first know who Jesus is, because if we don't, we don't have that foundation. The heavens declare his glory. The church declares his glory. Paul, a persecutor of God, who was indeed actually hostile to God, 
actually doing evil deeds is now proclaiming the glory of God. And this is why he goes to such lengths to describe who Jesus is, because he knows that if we lack this understanding, this theology of Jesus, we will be swayed by the thoughts of the world around us as the Colossians were at risk of. And we see that in the next chapter, in chapter 2, that he calls them not to be held captive by philosophy and empty deceit from the world around them, from the world around us today. But what? But be rooted and grounded and built up in Christ, growing in maturity and our knowledge of him. And by doing so, the hope of the gospel grows. We become stable, we become steadfast, and we're able to withstand stronger winds and waves. And the result is us continuing in life in faith, knowing that God is holding it together, knowing that he is sustaining us. We do this by becoming people of the word, by diving into passages like this, by pressing in, working out details and flushing out exactly what do we believe about Jesus so that when someone comes along and says, you know, isn't Jesus just a created being? I mean, the, the first and greatest, sure, but still created, we can say, no, he's not. He is creator. So who is Jesus? He's God, Lord of creation, preeminent Lord of the church. He is Savior and Lord of your life. So let that encourage you this morning not to fear the unknown because we know he is holding it all together and let that motivate you and embolden you, continue in faith and press into him and the hope of the gospel that we have. Let's pray.